Bridget's little um, intro, um, same thing. Greetings, everyone. Thanks for uh, sharing the next hour or so of your Thursday evening with us. Um, I am going to get us started on our on our discussion, and um, and we're going to give it a go. So um, I'm going to tell you that I I'm, I'm right now I'm um, back in the uh, the room I use at my home that I like to use to do these podcasts. Kind of helps put me in the mood because I'm surrounded by nature. I can hear some of the uh, cool sounds of cicadas and katydids outside. You might be able to pick some of that up. Um, and the nature of tonight's discussion might have you want to get yourself doubly comfortable. Um, I'm going to talk about some stuff that I think is, uh, might make your blood boil a little bit. I know it does mine. Um, so, uh, I, I purposely made sure I brought a big stick of, um, incense just to kind of help further get me in the mode of things. And, um, I invite you to do the same, whether it's that or you might make, want to make yourself some herbal tea or whatever does it for you. But, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about issues in Philadelphia that are pretty, pretty serious. And, um, and so serious that, uh, as I get into it, you'll realize that I even decided to, um, make, uh, this evening's discussion a two-parter. So sit back, everyone, get yourself ready. And, um, and I'm going to get into it. So there's this place, a place where we dive and delve into the wonders of our surroundings, where the law is consilience, a jumping together of knowledge, forming a bridge that strongly connects the sciences, the arts, the humanities, a place where natural systems and human systems coexist in harmony, where connections are sought between humans and nature, humans and humans, nature and nature. And yes, a place where land, the living layers of earth, is an equal member of the community with rights just like humans. In this special place, the sense of wonder is our sustenance. You've just arrived at the land health ecosystem. So you'll wait with me for a second. Maybe I'll... Uh, I'm big on old fashioned matches. This is something actually from a, a restaurant I went to in Providence, Rhode Island ages ago. Oh, did you hear that? There's my match. Lighting my uh, natural incense here. Okay. All right. All right, that should help me uh, get through what I'm gonna go over with you. So, I also want you to know that because of the nature of what I wanted to discuss, I think this will work, but I, I wanted to not confine myself to, um, to too much pre-written notes and things. So what I've done is I've given myself um, notes that literally just are uh, on a little scratch pad. Um, I brought two books with me that, I, that will provide a little framework. I'm going to borrow from each. Um, and I also have an article that's going to get me into a lot of the main content. But I also wanted to see where my mind goes, because I've always, I've, I've been saying throughout these podcasts that um, we, we discuss the ecosystems of Philadelphia, but I, you know, I weave into it just the, the ecosystem workings of my own mind. And uh, I just thought it might be a little bit more natural if, um, you know, if I see what wanders into my mind as I start getting into this stuff. 
Um, there's no shortage of things to, to comment on. So one of the things that got me thinking, even uh, well after I knew I was going to do this topic, is, is the idea of activism. And I say activism, and sometimes I just, it, I, I want to sigh when I say like, ah, activism. And uh, it's an interesting concept. It's an interesting profession for somebody that calls him or herself a full-time activist. But, um, you know, it, it's something that I, that, I, that I realized, you know, it, like, it could be more than a full-time job depending on what you want to be an activist about. And, uh, and it's, it's, it, can be, it can be stressful. And what I'm getting at is like, so this is just borrowing from last night. You know, yesterday, I, like a lot of us, was chained to Zoom from about noon straight through till 10 o'clock p.m. I was doing various Zoom discussions. Um, there's a lot of things that could be worse with, in, in life, but uh, for somebody like me to be chained to a Zoom screen in my kitchen rather than being out and about, um, it's a challenge for me. Um, lots of agita woven in there. Uh, so, so that was going on. And the last four hours of my day were spent being one of the most vocal members of a uh, public meeting in my township. So last night was uh, the planning commission meeting. I sit on my planning commission in White Marsh Township, which is a uh, town that literally butts up against, you know, north, like the Chestnut Hill area. And um, we were yet again reviewing this uh, this, this preliminary plan by a developer looking to take the old Finneran and Haley paint site on the Schuylkill River. Um, a piece of white marsh does touch the Schuylkill River and they want to um, build residential apartments there and townhomes and, and the like. And, um, you know, it, it, it was look, and, and by the way, this, this, this has been going on. So the, so the developer has been in front of our group numerous times and um, we've been out to the site. Um, we've and and, uh, and I've been. I'm the green guy on our uh, on our planning commission. And from day one, I, I thought it was a very unenvironmental friendly development. And um, you know, I was just thinking, like, like, so last night, I guess I achieved something because it really looked like um, our members, you know, were leaning towards letting this thing make making the recommendation. That, um, to, that the board of supervisors that runs our township um, adopt or, or approve this plan. And kind of, I, I, I guess, you know, through all my inner workings and maybe at the 11th hour, um, the, the board ended up right as I um, got things and made a, a motion to deny their plan, um, the developer, before we voted on it, they said, hey, wait a second, Rather than voting, rather than voting, would you mind if we could try to go back and, and present something later on? Because they knew that if we voted it down, it would it would send them in a certain respect back to the drawing board, which is costly. And so we we I decided to take my vote off the table, hoping that they would do a more um, just benign, holistic um, plan. So I get so I in in a, in effect, my vocal vocal activism using science and and, uh, and 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 ecology as my underpinnings it seemed to have some success in it and it got enough of our board members to um 
you know, to, to, to vote in such where you could tell it, it was looking like, if anything, it might be a draw. But I got off and I was just drained, you know, because I'm thinking, you know, I, I, I do all these different things. I teach, I run this, you know, our nonprofit. And I was thinking about other people that just, you know, they, they do activism all day long. And it's just something, it just, it just has, you know, no, no, I'm not going anywhere with this other than there's so much around to be activist about. And it's, um, you know, and it even you know, has me wondering, like, you know, what, what's the best, if, if you care about this stuff, there's no shortage of environmental injustice around. And um, like, you know, how, how do you pick and choose? It's just a, um, but you know, it, it doesn't come without its stress. So, you know, so the nature of, of, of the discussion that I wanna be diving into, it, it concerns environmental injustice. And um, we're gonna talk tonight about a specific thing that was just uh, announced in the, in the news less than a week ago and then the following week, I, I'm going to take us into some neighborhoods and, and talk about, you know, injustice in, in there. Um, but what is this term anyway? Um, you know, in, environmental justice. Um, sometimes it's environmental racism, you know, injustice against whom. And um, without going into like lots and lots of detailed discussion about the term itself, because I think it'll start to just play out what it means as, in the discussion. But you know the injustice can certainly be against people, and you know certainly. But next week I'll give some specific examples. You could literally do field trips through Philadelphia, and you have no shortage of environmental justices um, bestowed upon different neighborhoods in Philadelphia, North Philly, South Philly, Southwest Philly, West Philly. You name it. You can point to big and small examples where you know where you know where pollution levels are higher in certain things where un you know unpleasant developments were allowed to go into one neighborhood maybe because that neighborhood isn't as um as influential or rich as another neighborhood so it's just it's 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 all over philadelphia um but at the same time if you're doing environmental injustice to people what i think often gets forgotten is that you're also in and of itself, in, in, in the definition itself, you're doing injustice to the environment. And I've talked in this, in this um, podcast in various ways about you know, that, that the land is, 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 should be treated as a member of the community. It's not people or the land, it's people and the land. We're part of the land, we're part of nature. And so when, you know, when, when somebody decides to do something and it impairs the river in a certain neighborhood, it hurts that neighborhood, depending on what they do there. It hurts. It, it could it could hurt the health of the of the individuals in that neighborhood, but it also hurts the fish that swim through that area of the river. It hurts the turtles that are going to use it. It hurts the birds that are going to fly over it. And and I don't think that really gets you know a whole lot of thought, um, at least as much as as what what happens to the people. You really kind of can't hurt one without the other. So environmental injustice to me, it's really just it's it's just really that 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 kind of arbitrary use of land that um that, that doesn't really take into account the well-being of of anything or anybody alive whether it be a critter whether it be a person and it doesn't and 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 also very importantly it often doesn't take into account um beings who are not alive yet and i think we forget about that because you know things like jobs end up you know being the the, the reason why you know, somebody's going to say, yeah, you should be able to frack in a forest that hasn't been impeded 
in the last hundred years because we need the jobs. Um, if you're in West Virginia, we should be allowed to do what's called mountain topping, which literally means cutting off the top of the mountain because it's a cheap and effective way to get to the bituminous coal that, 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 that resides beneath the mountaintop. Um, and, and we leave the valleys a mess and we leave the area a mess, but we need to do that because the people in West Virginia need, you know, they need their employment. And, and, and you hear arguments like that made left and right. But what happens to the salamanders in the valley that runs between two mountains that were topped, the spoils of which are, are, are thrown into the valley, which usually contains a stream. So, so you know, environmental injustice, when you think about it, um, it's not just about a single neighborhood. It's really, it, it, it's, about our, it's, it's about parts of our planet and everybody, meaning every plant, every person, every other living organism that's, that's part of that. So, so, like, why is there so much environmental injustice in Philadelphia. And, you know, I really think that it's because there's an utter, utter, utter disconnect between the leaders of Philadelphia and you fill in the blank. Um, people as a whole, neighborhoods, to make it a little bit smaller, individuals, and also ecosystems. Um, Another way of putting it is I think that there's like a blatant lack of empathy on, on the part of, of government leaders. And, and, and if, that, if that were not the case, Philadelphia would be a totally different um, city as, as, you know, compared to what it is right now. And there, there was um, a, lot of, a lot of coverage took place several weeks back when you had you know, the different... Uh, racial unrest and then you had all the all the different protests going on and then you had you know some of the uh ransacking that took place in 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 neighborhoods and you had the police not being prepared for it and then you had the police using tear gas all that kind of stuff was going on but there was you know a very um insightful meaning it, it gives us insight um comment by you know by a local philadelphia leader and and um you know, it was, you know, Brian Abernathy, who's stepping down as the managing director of the city and in the aftermath of all the, you know, of all that took place, he said, I was dumbfounded at how much anger um, uh, was expressed by the people that I'm hired to serve. I didn't, that's not quote word for word, but, you know, but what's one, it's uncanny that he's dumbfounded, but at the same time, it's really not. But the other thing that, that, um, that I don't think really ever got stated enough is if you're, if you're the managing director and in Philadelphia, that means you're the COO, you're the chief operating officer of the city, who do you report to? You, you report to, your, to, to the mayor, you report to the elected official at the top. So Abernathy made the statement but why didn't, why didn't the uh, mayor, why didn't the police commissioner just join him in the statement? It wasn't just his statement. They were all dumbfounded. That disconnect that I'm talking about, that's, that to me is the problem behind so many of the social and environmental issues that, that, that our city has. It's, and we're not just talking about the present. I'm talking like going way, way, way back. Um, at least it was candid of him to admit but when you think about that word, you know, dumbfounded, I had to even look it up just to, you know, um, it, you can even, it's fun to look at its origin, but you know, you know, one, one thing that goes into uh, a little bit of detail of the word 
you know, as if struck dumb with astonishment and surprise, you know? And so like, again, where does this, where does this come from? Where does this dumbfoundedness come from on the part of the people that you would expect would hopefully um, have our, you know, have empathy, you know, like at their core, you know, th these are, you elect the, the mayor. In this case, it's a guy, he hires a staff, the top of the staff makes a couple hundred thousand bucks a year with taxpayer money. And, and then you have them in the course of a, a you know, a, a tough, tragic situation, basically saying they were dumbfounded. And that means read what you like, but they were totally unprepared. But to me, what's even worse is they had no, that's saying they had no idea that there was anger there. And so, you know, like it's, it's scary to me because there's anger in just about every neighborhood in Philadelphia. And just because anger doesn't always get expressed with somebody like setting something on fire does not mean that that anger doesn't exist. And so um, it's just, uh, I'm going to get into that in more detail next week as I kind of give you a, um, a tour based on my own experiences of a, of a few neighborhoods where I think there is no empathy, there is no connection between government and the needs of communities. Um, but I wanted to get us into, um, I was already, by the way, to, to talk about that, you know, and then the paper came out on Sunday. And to me, like the paper is made out of paper. I'm still one of those old diehards that still gets the Philadelphia Inquirer. I get it delivered. Um, whoever delivers it, you know, puts it at the foot of my driveway. Sometimes it's actually in the street. Um, when I was a kid, I was a paper boy. And I would toss my paper on the, on the porch of people I, who I delivered the paper to. And if I missed, I got off my bike and I um, picked that paper up and I like made sure I flipped it right at their door. I didn't want them to walk too far, but um, I'm, I'm getting a little divergent here. But, uh, you know, so let alone, I still read the Philadelphia Inquirer, which has basically become thinner and thinner over the years. And I kind of feel like it's the Washington Post, um, you know, in, in the form of the Inquirer, because, you know, so much of the uh, articles are written by Washington Post people and the Associated Press. But Again, I still think papers uh, have an importance. So, but the other thing is, it's really, if you get the paper and you're like me and you're an activist like me, even if part-time, you know, you're almost afraid to open it these days because like, you know, can you, you know, every single day, it's like, well, what sad headline am I gonna read? And it's, it's, it's start, you know, I'm a pretty upbeat guy, but it's, it's, it's I gotta admit, it's, it's starting to get to me. But on Sunday, you know, the, it wasn't even the top of the line. It was below the uh, fold of the front page. Um, you know, an article that talked about, um, at, it's basically titled in South Philadelphia, at refinery site, a plan takes shape. And basically it's an article that says that the, uh, that the firm that bought the uh, refinery that exploded and miraculously nobody died um, in that explosion that was Somehow, I think that was kind of like a miracle that that, that, that didn't happen. Um, but uh, that there is now a conceptual master plan out that was um, that, that that was put out there to the public by um, by Hillco Redevelopment Partners, and uh, and it's basically their first public visual representation of their building plans for an entirely polluted and get this thirteen hundred acre site. Um, that they uh, inherited by buying it out of bankruptcy um, from its prior owners. Um, and so 
I looked at the, I, I read the article, I look at the plan and it, you know, just, just borrowing pieces of the article, it shows that most of the uh, Philadelphia Energy Solutions site um, that's now occupied by refinery towers and storage tanks is going to get replaced with nearly a dozen million square foot, quote, logistics centers that, help, that Hilco is saying they hope will eventually employ 10,000 people. So if you're not familiar with where this site is, um, if you, the, I still call it the Penrose Avenue Bridge. The Platte Bridge um, crosses the Schuylkill River not too far from where the Schuylkill enters the, uh, the Delaware River. And so like on either side of that bridge, but mostly upstream of that bridge, is this sprawling, sprawling complex um, that made up the, uh, you know, the holdings of Philadelphia Energy Solutions. Um, basically, if you want to like, you know, see what a tank farm looks like, this, that's, that's where you go. Um, and so, you know, that after that explosion and that whole catastrophe, um, PES filed, I guess, ch chapter seven, I guess. And then, um, and, then, uh, and then after an auction, the city decided that Hilco was, was the right choice. And, you know, the city's really good at taking, looking at messes and then trying to find somebody else to clean up the mess. And I'll get into that later into the, in, into my um, meanderings of my mind. But, uh, you know, what, you know, so the city is crossing its fingers that Hilco is for real and that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. Um, and then basically you know, that they take the mess off of the hands of the city. And we're talking about a 150 year old mess of chemical on top of chemical on top of chemical in a, in a, in a tidal area, okay? So, um, and so not too many paragraphs into, the, uh, into this article, which was not a great way to start a Sunday. It says that the, soil, the site's soil management plan approved in June by the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection and also filed with the city, calls for the polluted soil to be largely entombed beneath hundreds of acres of buildings, parking lots, and driveways. And according to the plan itself, this is a quote, based on the planned redevelopment of the site, most soils at the site will ultimately be located beneath a development component that will serve as an exposure barrier. Okay, so, and then the, 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 the article, you know, goes into a variety of things. And then they, and they, and they let you know that there's at least um, one, one person who, who, um, who represents a coalition of environmental groups, you know, who, his quote is, seriously contaminated soil should be removed, not just pushed together under buildings and parking lots. Hilco seems to be opting for the cheapest remediation methods, not the best ones. Well, well he's right. And, um, and, and what, what does the city think when they, you know, when they take a bankruptcy sale, and then they, and then they, and, and they bring somebody from the private side to come in, or, or like, what do they think is going to happen? You know, they're going to do the cheapest thing that they can, and they're going to cap. Basically, they're going to like take all this mess and they're going to lock it up. So, so that's so that's enough that you need to know about this plan. I'm going to talk a little bit more about, you know, what your alternatives are after I kind of walk us back in history um, in, uh, around this area. But think about this for a second. An opportun there's always opportunity 
whenever something happens, good or bad, if you, if you take an entrepreneurial approach to life, you're like, hmm, what, what opportunity gets open here? Well, in this case, a site, think about it, 1,300 acres, that's no small parcel in Philadelphia, all bordering the Schuylkill River, actually both sides of it because there's another tank farm on the, on the other bank of the Schuylkill across from the main part of the site. Well, as I see it, you have an explosion, tells you something was wrong there. Somehow you get lucky that people didn't die from this noxious gas that got released um, and could have been a lot worse were not for the heroics of at least one person that I read about, um, let alone like machinery equipment that weighs tons, literally launched from the east side of the river to the west side of the river. Go figure. Not, not, your, not your everyday explosion. So we're, we're, we're talking about sheer luck here. If I'm the mayor of the city, I'm saying, whoosh, that's pretty, uh, like, we, we just avoided something that, that might not make us look too, too good. Um, um, I'm pretty thankful about that. And then, but also if I'm a progressive mayor, I think our um, mayor considers himself progressive. And I gen tend to think of that word as having progress at its, at its core. I might think, wow, what, what opportunities might this open up? You know, what opportunities does it open up for me who succeeded the mayor that said that we were the greenest city in the country, or at least wanted to be the greenest city? What kind of opportunities does that open up? Well, obviously the thought was get somebody in there that can take this mess off our hands, hopefully clean it up, and then we're done with it. So now you have, when you, when you look at the piece of the master plan, that's on the, uh, on the continued page of the article and in the Philadelphia Inquirer, you go online and easily see it. Um, this is all public. Um, you see the sprawling 1300 acre site and you see all these rectangles on it. And there are those warehouses, you know, whatever logistics centers might happen to mean, and, and maybe they will in fact employ 10,000 people, but you see warehouse after warehouse after warehouse. You see on the other side, the reopening of a Schuylkill River tank farm. Um, that's a farm of tanks that hold petroleum products, right? It's not a farm, um, not that farming is any um, great shakes. It's not a farm um, that people will be growing from. You also see um, continued use or renewed use of a rail yard. And so you see this on both sides of the Schuylkill River. And, um, you know, do you call that progressive? I, I certainly don't. I also don't see any green on it. I don't see any word that says restoration, reclamation, or anything of the, of the like. So that's what we got here. So that's what's going to go up into public discussion. Maybe some of the discussion is going to go around that soil discussion. Um, and listen, nothing stays capped forever. Nothing is as powerful as water. That's what I was going over with uh, the developer last night. Same thing. Do you think it's you think a Finneran and Haley paint site that um that also was like over 100 years old, um, paint on top of paint on top of paint products, um, and 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 they're they're essentially going to cap, um, you know, nasty stuff in the soil in place, um, you know, water works its way through anything. Okay, so if we care about generations that haven't been born yet, somebody's going to get that mess leaching out. The Schuylkill River. That, that, that um, right before it enters the Delaware River, tidal, you know, you got tidal workings on a daily basis. You've got the salt line of the Atlantic Ocean that's basically, um, you know, moving up from Delaware as we speak. 
um, you know, maybe in as short as 10 years from now, that salt line, you know, the, the water might well be brackish, which is a little bit even more corrosive or invasive than, than, than fresh water. You know, that's going to be, you know, what's, what's going to be around you know, this area. Um, we're already up to what, the, uh, the ninth or 10th named storm. It's like the earliest in history. Um, you know, we got lots of storms, you know, that are, that are brewing more than in the past. Um, you don't have to be a meteorologist, a climatologist, or any kind of scientist to know that it's not getting any calmer out there where the climate is concerned and where the storms are concerned. So you got all this at the dynamic intersection of the Schuylkill and the Delaware. And so we're going to put in warehouses. We're going to take um, 150 years of, of, of um, and again, this, this master plan goes into all the kinds of chemicals. I won't, um, I, I don't want to de depress you too much. You can look that up, but it's, it's, it's not stuff you want to be drinking or swimming in. And if you're a fish, you don't want to be swimming in it either. So that's what we have going there. I, so what I want to do for like, you know, the next amount of time is kind of go back in history. Okay. Um, like this plan thing, what do you, you know, is that the right plan? What do you do about it? Um, how, how do you decide what to do about it? Well, I'm really big on context. And I think that it's important that we kind of go back in history. So the theme of that history basically is that Philadelphia for over 400 years um, in relation to the Schuylkill River, it's basically been a one-sided deal. It's been taking, 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 taking with one little exception that I'll tie into when we go into the history. So there's this really nifty book, very, very forward thinking, written almost a hundred years ago. So if you want the title, I love this book, okay? It's called The Redemption of the Lower Schuylkill. Sounds like something you might write now, you know? Um, um, it's, and then it's subtitled, The River As It Was, The River As It Is, The River As It Should Be. And it's by John Frederick Lewis. It was uh, published, I believe, by the City Parks Association of Philadelphia. And guess what the date was? 1924, okay? So again, in four years, this book's going to be 100 years old. I got a nice original copy that I'm so, um, you know, proud to own. It has pictures galore in it. I'm talking black and white photographs of what the Schuylkill River looked like back then. So this forward-thinking author, you know, I'm going to share just some bits and pieces of the book. It's a classic. So this is from the recording secretary of Philadelphia. This will kind of give, this is the introduction. The City Parks Association of Philadelphia, upon January 17th, 1924, held a reception at the Hall of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania at 1300 Locust Street, I think it's still there, to meet the Honorable W. Freeland Kendrick, Mayor of Philadelphia, and Mrs. Kendrick. The following address upon, quote, the redemption of the Lower Schuylkill was delivered by Mr. John Frederick Lewis. Mr. Lewis is president of the art jury, right? He's not an ecologist, the art jury, of Philadelphia and served for many years as a member of the executive committee of the comprehensive plans committee of the city of Philadelphia and as chairman of its subcommittee on parks and parkways during which period the parkway was opened upon its present lines from city hall to Fairmount. And I believe that's the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. Um, his intimate knowledge of the subject upon which he speaks justifies the publication of the address. Mr. Eli Kirk Price, president of the association, introduced Mr. Lewis. So basically, 
this book is the address that was delivered by this Mr. Lewis. And, um, and, and it's the address, but interspersed among th the three parts of the address, the before, the present, and the, and the later, um, it's, uh, it, you got these amazing photographs. So I'm gonna just, I'm gonna pick and choose. I think you'll enjoy me reading it because it is pretty cool and it's very historic. So I'm just gonna pick and choose some of, the, some of what's in here. So this is at the very start um, when he introduces his speech. Mr. Mayor, ladies and gentlemen, I felt considerable diffidence about accepting the gracious invitation to address you until your distinguished president suggested that I speak upon the redemption of the Lower Schuylkill. I then felt a call to duty not unlike that of the disciples to preach the gospel, because I know of no work that our beloved city could presently undertake, which would be more in accord with the gospel of the last dispensation than that of regenerating the lower Schuylkill so that it might bring fresh air, pure water, and comfortable homes to the hundreds and thousands of our fellow citizens who live in the yards below the dam. I'm sorry, the wards below the dam. The welfare of any community as an absolute unit and no section should be overlooked in the work of betterment. The health and happiness of the poor are vital to the health and happiness of the rich. Disease, physical, moral, and political originates in the lowest stratum of society, and the best way to prevent and eradicate such disease is to raise the deadly level. Redeeming the lower Schuylkill from being an open sewer with its dump collecting station, its oil refineries, abattoir, chemical and paint manufactories, and garbage disposal plants and making it a beautiful river with bordering parkways upon both banks lined with trees and with open spaces for public use and the peninsulas formed by the river's windings is a work of social uplift worthy of a second messiah. Okay, that's his opening paragraph. Pretty powerful, even if you're not religious, okay? Um, and then what is he talking about here? Um, the Lower Schuylkill and the dam 1922, it wasn't that long. It was um, maybe a uh, hundred or so years after they built the, uh, the, the dam that starts what he's talking about, the title or the lower Schuylkill, okay? That's an arbitrary act that we're gonna talk about in a few minutes. And, um, and so the lower Schuylkill is basically runs from the art museum down to um, this esteemed refinery plant um, that I just talked about a couple minutes ago, okay? So that's, that's the area he's talking about. An abattoir is a French word for slaughterhouse. That's what he's talking about there. And we'll share a little bit of this, but he's, he's right at the, at the outset telling you that public dumping of sewage and garbage and, and, and you know, pig parts and the like are all getting dumped into the, into the lower Schuylkill. He's saying there is no reason why the Schuylkill below the dam should not be as beautiful and useful as it is above it. And there's no reason why the dam, which is a purely artificial construction, should act as a curse to bar further improvement to the naturally beautiful river, which flows for miles so close to our doors. This, the lower Schuylkill was formerly quite equal in, the, in beauty to the upper. When the river was first discovered by the Dutch in 1628, it, in 28, they called it the Varsh Rivierte, that is the little fresh water river and its waters always noted for being purer and colder than those of the Delaware can again be made fit for human consumption and its breezes meet and proper for our people to breathe. 
So he goes to talk a little bit about the early history and what the river was like in the olden days, okay? I'm gonna not, it, it, it's amazing stuff that he covers, but I'm gonna give you that standpoint um, or, or that, that understanding from an author in, in, in a little bit who's a contemporary author who also writes about the, uh, you know, the, um, what, what the Schuylkill River used to be like. So it's great, you know, you, you, you page through this book and you see all these different aspects of, you know, you know, older bridges that used to span the river, the Fairmount Waterworks in 1838. He has all these really beautiful historic pictures that he, that he weaves in um, to the early part of the, of, of, this, of the section. But then you start getting into um, something that says, looking northward across the river towards a sewer and quote, woodlands, okay? That's the woodland cemetery in the background. And there's a big sewer pipe emptying right into the, right into the Schuylkill River below that, okay? Um, that's when crossing Gray's Ferry Bridge from the east. You have another picture that says, looking across the east bank of the river, north of Gray's Ferry Bridge, over a dump for filth into an open sewer and then towards the woodlands, okay? It's a different view. You would not think these pictures are pretty, okay? But then he, but then he puts these old beautiful pictures in where there's a lot of trees that are still left on the, uh, on the side of the river. Um, so basically, you get to page through these awesome, awesome pictures that, you know, if they were colorized, they would look a, light, a, a, a lot like, you know, much of the river um, the, at the lower part of the Schuylkill that you see today. So um, I'm going to read how he kind of describes, just bear with me for about a page, um, where he gets into the river as it is. Okay, he, he hinted at it in his introductory speech. So after he like presented how beautiful the river used to be, he, here's <clears throat> how he gets people into <clears throat> what it feels like today, today being 1924. Let us now look upon the lower Schuylkill as it is. Let us go to the top of the old Morris Hill where the city is crowning a magnificent parkway with a stately and majestic art gallery, okay? Note, this is before, this is as they're building the, the Philadelphia Art Museum, they didn't even have its name yet. And facing the setting sun, look up the river and then down it, quote, upon this picture and upon this Hyperion to a satyr. To the right, there is a lovely, as lovely a prospect as any great American city affords. The Schuylkill winds in a graceful curve with rolling banks upon both sides and avenues of trees and beds of shrubbery, all uniting as a framework for the silver surface of the river upon which pleasure boats are plying hither and thither every place in view affording health and happiness to thousands of our fellows. To our left, without even turning around, we see at our feet immediately below the double-decked bridge at Callow Hill Street, an enormous dump heap to which ashes, waste paper, tin cans, old bottles, and domestic waste are carted across this magnificent parkway between the art gallery at the west and the cathedral at the east, and then loaded onto barges to be hauled downstream and dumped upon the banks of the river, lest the dust and waste paper which blows off on the journey and can be seen floating upon the surface. We can see, and if the wind is in the right direction, can smell the sewage from a square mile of West Philadelphia beyond the zoological gardens, discharged by a 10-foot sewer into the river just above the dam at the locks of the Schuylkill Canal, from which it descends to the river below, and by merely turning our head, 
We can also see, and if the wind is in the right direction, can also smell, the sewage discharged just below the dam by the main intercepting sewer, which extends from Shawmont Avenue eight miles up the river and collects sewage from many square miles of Maniunk and of the northern and western part of the city, fouling the water immediately below the art gallery and where prior to the construction of the sewer in 1883, there were swimming pools and bathhouses. Upon the west bank is an open sewer in the neighborhood of the dump and five main sewers at Mount Vernon Street, Spring Garden, parentheses by the way, how appropriate the name for a sewer outlet with an exclamation point, end parentheses, Palton Avenue, Chestnut and Walnut Streets further pollute the already filthy waters by the sewage from West Philadelphia as far west as 42nd Street and as far north as Spring Garden. The conditions upon the East Bank are even worse. Main sewers are at Wood Street, Race, Arch, Market, Sansom, Chestnut, Locust, Spruce, Pine, Lombard South, Bainbridge, Christian, Ellsworth, Reed, Jackson, and Pollock Streets, and at Passyunk Avenue, are twin sewers eight feet in diameter. All of them, a total of some 20 main sewers, excrete the domestic and industrial waste of nearly one million people into the quote, Varsh Rivierte, I don't know if, if I, I'm not, I don't have really good Dutch pronunciation here, which carries it back and forth by the movement of the tide within a short distance of the city dwellings until the entire accumulated filth is mixed with the waters of the Delaware for the use of our fellow citizens to bathe in or drink if they can at Marcus Hook, Chester, Wilmington, and Newcastle. But this is not all. There is an oil refinery above Filbert Street, between 30th Street and the West Bank of the River, and close to the bridge of the Pennsylvania Railroad, where strangers to the city can see and smell it. There's a drove yard and an abattoir, which is a blot on the city's escutcheon. It has done more to stop improvement in its, in its vicinity upon the West Bank of the River, and even upon the East, than any other deleterious agency. It's a breeder of disease directly, and by means of flies, which it naturally attracts. This wretched establishment has long outlived every excuse for its present location, and the patience of our citizens should no longer be imposed upon in permitting its continuance. There's no past nor present sense for its situation in the geographical center of the city. Meat markets should, of course, be accessible to the homes of our people. But when the abattoir was placed where it is, refrigerator cars were unknown, and slaughtering thousands of cattle and hogs in our very midst should now be indicted and abolished as a public nuisance. Market Street, which it adjoins, is the widest, longest, and most important east and west thoroughfare the city includes. When the abattoir was projected in, in November 1874, a, a committee of citizens made a protest against it as, quote, a grave injury to our city, and such it has been ever since. It was designed to do away with small slaughterhouses, but it was a short-sighted mistake in removing one nuisance to establish another and greater one. A city which derives its income chiefly from taxation upon improved property should not, should not allow in her midst a source of offense which every sensible seller of valuable real estate prohibits by express restrictions in his deeds. As a matter of fact, when the abattoir was established, building lots in its neighborhood sold by the same owner which conveyed to the abattoir inserted in its deeds of conveyance a clause, and this is quoting from the clause, under and subject to the restriction and express agreement between the parties here too that no slaughterhouse, skin dressing establishment, nor building for offensive occupation should at any time hereafter be used or erected upon any part of granted premises. So basically he goes on and he talks more about the abattoir 
And then he talks about more of the, um, the, 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 the other nasties that are, that are all around the lower Schuylkill. One final little thing I'll read to you and then I'll get back into my pathway back into history. Have I overdrawn the, the picture or used too dirty a brush in painting its colors? I think not. The very air itself is blackened with the smoke and dirt of many factories upon the river, which could be better located by a beneficial system of zoning where they would not be as near our art gallery, our beautiful park, and the houses of our people. So this book is a masterpiece. Um, this book is as relevant, unfortunately, and maybe fortunately, in, in 1924 as it is in 2020. So, you know, and he doesn't even talk about, you know, the lower part of the school that we're talking about, which which was definitely, you know, you know, in the in the heyday of its refining days um, when he wrote that. So he talks about making the lower part as beautiful as the upper part. And he talks about the dam being the divider. And so you got to go back in history a little bit to, to understand what he's talking about here. And so again, this this um this is just some quick history, but the the the, Phila the city of Philadelphia has one of the largest park systems in, in the country, Fairmount Park. It's about 10,000 or more acres. And so, but when the, when the city um, first, you know, um, anointed something, Fairmount Park, it did not do so for necessarily for the aesthetic um, good of the people or for, their, or, or for their own health or to give them a bunch of walkways to, to, to meander through the woods. So what, what it really was, was the dam of the Schuylkill River that, you know, that was part of um, an architectural and engineering marvel known as the Fairmount Waterworks. And so, you know, the quick history of, of Philadelphia and its relationship to water is that, you know, in, in, I, I think the, uh, you know, it, in the early 1800s, um, the cities first started taking water from actually sending water from the Schuylkill up to the top of Fairmount, which is the hill upon which the uh, art museum now sits. And um, the basement of that art, of our art museum are, you know, formerly was um, uh, reservoirs that held water from the Schuylkill. And so, um, you know, first they, first they directly took the water from the, the lower Schuylkill and pumped it up there. There were issues with steam engines that, that, had, to, that had to get that water up there. There was explosions. And, um, and so what they did was they, 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 they took their, their engineering marvel, which was still a marvel at the time, and they said, we don't need steam power, let's just let water power do it. So, so Frederick Graff was one of the, uh, the main engineers behind um, the design, and they decided to put, the, at the time, I think the longest concrete dam in the world, they dammed the Schuylkill, arbitrarily said the tide stops here. They took that water from the upper part send it into an impound, something called an, like a, uh, um, an, like an impounded area. Um, and that, so that, so they, that water went behind the buildings of the waterworks. And today, if you go, there's a parking lot that you can park in and you're parking in a parking lot that literally sat on top of a, actually they call it the four bay, I believe. Um, you know, and that water would go into the waterworks themselves, the workings of the waterworks down below. And then, and then they would use water wheels and those water wheels with the power of the water itself would take the water and they would pump it up the hill to the, to the top of Fairmount. And then from there, gravity would feed that water to the whole city of Philadelphia. An amazing, amazing invention. Um, they built beautiful buildings around it. They landscaped the area. They built beautiful fountains and busts of famous people and all that kind of stuff. 
And so to this day, if you hang out around Fairmount, it's gorgeous. It's really, really cool. And um, so, so that happened. But then the city um, panicked because what happened also after, you know, after that was done in the 1820s, the Industrial Revolution kicks into high gear by the mid 1800s. By the late 1800s, the city is sending polluted water to its citizens in a very efficient manner. And so the city's like, oh my God, what do we do about this? Um, like, this is terrible. We're, we're taking, you know, polluted water. We don't have a filtration system because at first we never thought we needed one. And um, we don't have room to start putting chemical filtration there because it was all taken up by the reservoirs themselves. So they, so the city said, okay, let's use this handy dandy tool we have called eminent domain. And they basically bought up, you know, whether you wanted to or not, they basically forced all the landholders out, out of their holdings on both sides of the Schuylkill River up to the city line at the time. And then also all up the, the Wissahickon Creek up to Northwestern Avenue, which is the dividing line between the city and Montgomery County. So they created overnight green space. The, and initially it was done because they thought if we can buffer the stream, the, you know, the river in these areas, hopefully that'll clean it up enough so that we can keep giving water to people without, you know, making them sick. Well, it was a really interesting concept, but when you consider it, the Schuylkill River is 130 miles long, um, that's not necessarily gonna do it, okay? Pottstown, Pottsville, Redding, um, Phoenixville, you name it. They're like, you know, the, the Schuylkill River starts out, you know, 100 plus miles up in Schuylkill County, and the Industrial Revolution wasn't stopping in those areas. And at that point, I don't think Maniunk was even chartered as part of the city. Maniunk was like, you know, a famous textile center. You know, so um, inks and dyes and, and, and waste products are all, you know, above the city line were still being dumped into the river. So um, after a little while, the city realized we, we just got to vacate this, this, this eighth wonder of the world, as some people like Charles Dickens tend to, to regard it. And they went to this chemical filtration process. And, you know, that right now is like our Belmont plant, our Henry Avenue or Queen, I guess, Queen Lane um, uh, drinking plant and, uh, and the Baxter plant on the Delaware River, the main, the main ways that Philly now gets its water. But they had a good PR campaign and some good marketing people. So they quickly did an about face and said, hey, we got Fairmount Park, the biggest city park in the country. Go at, Philadelphians go out and enjoy. So this beautiful upper part of the river um, you know, that you just, you just heard about in the, uh, in, in the book that I just read from, um, you know, what the author was referring to is, Fair, is the original part of Fairmount Park on both sides of the Schuylkill. Was, it was an industrial mess unto itself until the city used eminent domain and tossed out, you know, the, you know many of the, the factories and the like that, that were there. So that, you know, so the city at one point took it upon itself to do a very controversial thing and, and, and you, you know, use, use eminent domain and it, and it, you know, basically threw people out and, you know, gave them, you know, quote, the market rate for their property. They paid them, but they paid them what the city said it was worth. So that's what happened. That figures into this history. Hold that in your, in, you know, in your memory for a second. Now, I'm going to borrow again from another book. Let's go way back in time. So I told you that, um, you know, that, that the author of the uh, Redemption of the Lower Schuylkill, he also talks about the river as it was. And I don't mean to be rude to him because he, he had some real, you could, you could hear how eloquent he is. He had some eloquent language. But I really wanted to, to, to weave in a local author, Beth Kephart, who wrote a book called Flow. 
Um, and it's a beautiful book. Um, you know, the, the redemption of the Lower Schuylkill is beautiful in its candor and its vision, as I'll share with you as I tie this thing up in a, in a little bit. But in 2007, Beth Kephart wrote this book, um, and it's, it's subtitled The Life and Times of Philadelphia's Schuylkill River. And what's so beautiful about it is she writes it from the perspective of the river. So it's written in first person in these little vignettes. Every page is a tiny vignette, and it's the river talking in first person. Below that vignette, there's a footnote, and it kind of talks about what the river might be talking about, if you can use that additional um, explanation. And so what I just want to do to kind of give you a sense of what the river was all about is read like the first, um, I think it's the first um, uh, six short vignettes. Okay, so the Schuylkill River, by the way, where um, you know, like right where that refinery is, you're going to hear in one of the vignettes, the Schuylkill River, Schuylkill is literally Dutch for hidden river, okay, kill, um, K-I-L-L, there's a lot of, in New York, which had a heavy Dutch influence, you know, you have all kinds of things like fresh kills, kill van call, they're not talking about killing somebody, kill is another name for stream, and in, in Dutch, Schuylkill means hidden river, and it was called the Hidden River because right at the area where that refinery site sits, when a Dutch explorer sailed up the Delaware, he didn't realize that there was a 130 mile river um, meeting the Delaware River. It was so covered with like, like flowing grasses and, and probably things like hibiscus and all kinds of like amazing plants. Um, he just like, he had no clue that that was a full river. They, it was hidden because it was so lush there. Literally where that refinery um, farm or, and, and site sits today was lush, 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 tidal estuary, okay? So that what was there. So this will give you some more of a sense, again, written by someone, I love these things that are written by non-science people, that's the thing. Um, these, the, like Beth Kephart really has an appreciation for what this was, you know, from the standpoint of a humanist or a writer. So her first chapter, her first vignette is titled Rising. From within the fissure, I rise, old as anything. The gravel beneath me slides, blueback herring and eel, alewife and shad, muscle in to my wide blue heart and through. The smudged face of a wolf pools on my surface, and for that one instant, I go blind. Hemlock to either side, nut trees, laurel copses, the stony backs of snapping turtles on the shore, muskrat, shrew, and from the unlanterned forest, the bark of a fox, the skith, skith, skith of snakes over leaves, the prowl of a bobcat, and when it rains, the rain is its own kind of song, not just a drumming, but a lyric. Were their language, I'd be my own lone letter. Below that, she says, like all rivers, the Schuylkill is the product of crustal deformations in time. It begins unspectacularly in the Appalachian Mountains of Schuylkill County. It winds, widens, speeds and slows along a southeastern course over Precambrian and Paleozoic rocks, over shale and clay, until it finds its way to the Delaware River, draining some 1,916 square miles in the process and doing this day after day. Okay, so that's the beautiful Schuylkill, what it was like prior to any European, yeah, European setting or in it. Okay, next vignette is titled Bear, that's B-E-A-R. He breathes clouds in and breathes them out. There has been the long sleep of winter, and now as he stands near to my edge, bits of sticks in his matted fur, a lightning strike of white across his chest, 
He is besieged by smells, the curls inside leaves, the green cracking the earth, the beginnings of berries. If he has spent the winter dreaming wings, moths and birds and hoppers, he is hungry now for fish. The moon is high, it is afloat, yellow and generous as fruit. A breeze blows in from a place beyond the bend, and I begin to break apart. On the rise of the hill, there is a she-bear waiting. Her footnote, for bears, for wolves, for panthers, for muskrats, minks and deer, for huge wild turkeys, for flocks of pigeons, by the way, there's the, we're talking the passenger pigeons we once talked about, for frogs and hoppers, for most anything one might imagine, the river was a haven. Her next little vignette, Ganshowa Hana. The sky is theirs, the hunters after the bear, the thunderers and horned serpent of last night's storm and the souls on the long white trail rising. It was just yesterday that the Lenny Lenape boy and his father stood at my shore shadding with the claw of a bird and a net of knitted hemp. A bead had worked itself loose from the boy's black wampum. A kernel of grief sunk down and in among bones and stones surrendered seeds, the bulrushes that once released themselves from the earth and drowned. Today, in the smoky aftermath of the storm and the mood of mourning, I ride the humped back of that dark whelk. It is the eleventh day of a mother's dying, and soon the skies will change again. Her heart, soul, will ascend to the, to the heavens on its sky journey. Her blood soul will hover ever close. And her explanation, the Unami tribe of the Leni Lenapes was the first known group of humans to settle along the Schuylkill, a river they called Ganshawahana. Theirs was a spirit world rooted in a deep respect for nature. The stars overhead told stories of bear hunts and weather eternity. The dead were said to have two souls, the soul of the heart and the soul of the blood. On the 12th day of mourning, the heart soul ascended to the heavens. The blood soul for its part remained earthbound, a sometimes haunting, sometimes companionable ghost. Next vignette as time moves on, howling. I thought it was an owl in the middle of the night, but it was the boy they had sent out among the wild grapevines and twining trees to find his own manito, the boy in breech clout and moccasins, a feather quilt upon one shoulder. I had seen him go. I had heard his famished cries all through the night and then the day and then the next night. Then there was a silence like a death and then a waiting. I was afraid for him. I could not leave my banks and save him. Darkness and day, darkness and day, clouds that bear the face of time and a boy becomes a man. Explanation. Out into the woods by the river, adolescent Indian boys were sent to fast and to come to terms with their own fears. It was in this way that they found their manitos and became men. Now listen, because we only have two to go. Flight. Now he fells another tulip tree, rims it in fire and axes it to the ground, then measures off a length and axes it again, burns the inside out, puts a stone adds to it, carries it to my edge and sets it down, so that it trails the smell of smoke, this shallop, so that it is the sound of a blade in pulp as it rides my back this morning. By the way, if that's not clear, that's taking a tulip poplar and turning it into a canoe. Back to her. It is March and the fog has lifted. The sturgeon are thick. The lamprey eels have latched themselves to the shad that have come up from the bay, turning my surface the color of purpose, of fishbacks, of this floating, painted man whose spear points down from the sky. Now the sturgeon take to the air and fly, and I find myself flying with them. I shatter and I bead, rain back down onto myself, less than I've been. 
This season's fish are bigger than any bird I've ever seen, bigger than the menace of a storm-soaked cloud. I feel their size all over me. The shallop shudders with the thrashing of fish. The man with the spear shudders too, rocks back and forth, tips this way, tips the other, until just like that, he has fallen into me. His hair swims away from him like so many black minnows. Ah, I love that. Her explanation, it has been said that the Atlantic sturgeon once so crowded the Schuylkill River that one could walk across it on their backs during the, the spawning season. Armored with bony scoots, these anadromous fish with tube-like mouths are creatures from another time, throwbacks to the age of dinosaurs. In their eagerness to get upriver, the sturgeon were said to fly, hurtle through the air toward their destination. Anadromous, by the way, refers to any kind of fish, like a salmon, a shad, um, a sturgeon, spends most of its time in the Atlantic Ocean and then uh, makes its way upriver to freshwater systems to spawn. All right, here's the, uh, the early climatic um, vignette and, and in some ways it's all downhill from here. So listen closely. This is called found. Back to the river talking now. You know how the bulrushes grow? By the way, bulrushes are huge grasses. You know how the bulrushes grow? Straight up and without fanfare. Tufts of brown and a rattle of seeds at the tall stalk's stem. You know how they are hearth to fish and duck, to the birds that sing, how they cluster and in the sweetest gesture of protection fail to disclose. But then a man, a stranger, his face a paler shade of flesh, his flag the color of fish eyes, his posture the posture of a man who should pass on by, finds himself out on that other river and suddenly onto something draws my veil of bulrushes aside at the very place where I leak out of myself, where my long unspooling ends, where I am narrow, yes, and shallow, yes, he finds me, paddles through, and history is changed. I have nothing to gain. I have nothing right there to offer. Did he expect more? Could he not, Sal, see, could he not see how far I had come? I beach him, and he tries again. I beach him and he breaks, turns his boat back amidst of the circus active shad. He yanks at the bulrushes, slaps at the buzz of the bugs, drags his hand across his forehead and returns to wherever he's come from. The turtles yelling obscenities, though he's too full of schemes to hear. As if I needed another name, he calls me Hidden Creek. As if I needed further examination, he spreads the word, a grotesque failure of the imagination. Explanation. History has it that the first European to voyage up the Schuylkill was a man named Arendt Corson of the Dutch East Indies Company. The river itself was not easy to find, for the bulrushes were in bloom and masked the narrow opening where the Schuylkill finally empties into the Delaware River. Probably in honor of the river's clever disguise, this new waterway was called Skokoil, which means Hidden Creek. Okay. And as she says, both the river herself and Beth Kephart, once, once, the, once that river was found, history was totally changed for the next 400 years, which then brings us right back up to the, the present and that article I read about the refinery. And so you got to think about that when you, when, you, when you think about the opportunity that is probably slipping through the hands of the city as we speak. Okay, so you can see that history is, has, shows us that Philadelphia, for the most part, has been taking and taking and taking from its Schuylkill River, okay? So there are still shad in the Schuylkill, and that's thanks to the 1970s Clean Water Act that 
once finally the government made it illegal or fined you a whole lot of money to dump into the river, almost like a miracle, um, the river cleaned up in, in, in to, to a great extent, not to full extent, but a great extent. So once once the seventies came along and and and, and um, you know and, and acts like that were passed, um, you know, fish started making their way back into the river. But the river still is extremely polluted. If you try to take a walk down the Schuylkill River below um, the falls, you can walk for about a mile or so. But once you get to South Street, you have to stop. There's a process in place to try to, you know, which is costing millions of dollars to continue a, a Schuylkill River trail. But for the most part to this very day, the lower Schuylkill is inaccessible to you, me, and others, okay? It's mostly owned by, um, by tank farms, by junkyards, by auto body shops, and the like. Um, so while there's been some improvement, um, there's, there's far too few, uh, uh, far too little of it. The, um, I'm not going to read this because I really want to wind us down, but when the, um, in, like in, in, in his book, um, The River As It Should Be, um, the, uh, you know, the author starts talking about, you know, you know, from the river that was and the river that is, let us now turn the river that should be. Other cities with less population and larger debts than Philadelphia have disposed of their sewage and improved their riverbanks. And if Philadelphia may, may not lead in these movements, she should at least be able to follow. And, 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 and quotes from London, the largest city in the world at the time, how it, um, you know, how it removes sewage from its, its River Thames. Um, so he, he quotes that, but then he goes on to talk about um, connections. It's really uncanny what he came up with. The work need not and cannot be done all at once. A beginning should be made by condemning immediately the narrow strip of land between the west bank of the Schuylkill below the dam, between 30th Street and the bulkhead, which would permit a park and embankment driveway from Spring Garden Street to Arch. It could connect with the West River, the West Drive along the river above the dam, and then below the Callow Hill Street, could be connected by spurs from the north and the south with Calton Avenue and 30th Street. And then he actually says like that, that, could, that, that, that all of that might cost only $265,000. But then he goes on and on talking about, um, you know, connect, continuing connections all the way down the lower Schuylkill, go figure. Um, you know, the East Schuylkill Driveway should also be continued, which if the tracks of the Baltimore and Ohio East Side Railroad are not abandoned, um, could be arcaded and the surface rights above the tracks thus reclaimed for the driveway. Um, and basically he talks about how you could have like the same, the same way you have East and West River Drive that you could do the same thing on the lower part of the Schuylkill. So in 1924, some guy had the awareness uh, that connectivity along the river is important for people, right? Because um, there, there was no access back then, as he makes clear in his book, and there's, no, and there's very little access as we speak, okay? And we're spending millions of dollars just to get little boardwalk access here and there um, for, the for that whole lower portion all the way down to the Delaware River. So very, very clairvoyant thinking. Unfortunately, his recommendations are as valid today as they were 100 years ago. Um, really, really, that should be read into the record when you come up with master planning for the Lower Schuylkill. It wasn't done when I believe it was PIDC, Industrial Development Corp, that did some master planning process maybe 10 years ago on the Lower Schuylkill. I don't know that they, that how much they quoted from his book, but don't, you know, I did, I did not check that for um, this podcast. So I want to go back and just say like, well, what do you do? All right. 
Well, I am not at all a big fan of eminent domain. I think it's a, it should be used under the m most, you know, extreme of situations. It's, you know, it's, it's a really, really, uh, it's a term that could, that could have a debate unto itself. But if you look at, this, at the master plan and you look at the picture that was just put in the, in the Philadelphia Inquirer, you see something on it. And if you know what you're looking at, you see that, you see it like filled with rectangles of warehouses, future warehouses. You see the Schuylkill River tank farm labeled so that it becomes a tank farm again. But if you look beyond that, you see that not too far away is what's called FDR Park. Um, FDR Park is, the, is a remnant little park in South Philadelphia. Um, FDR Park is about 350 acres, okay? And um, it's a, uh, it has about half of it is a golf course, which I believe is being closed by the parks, you know, by Fairmont Park. The other half is basically gathering areas. Out of the 348 acres, there's only about 70 or so acres that have, that have, um, that have, act, that are actually like natural areas. There's a couple little lakey kind of things, that, and one, of, one or two of which go up and down with the tide a little bit. Basically, it's a leftover of the estuary. But there's some, there's some pristine-ish areas in there if you know where to find it. Well, a progressive green thinking mayor of the city has an opportunity to, 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 to do something with 1,300 acres that's right at the lower, lower, lower part of the Schuylkill River. You can look at it, anybody can look at a map and say, hey, um, you go across Penrose Avenue, there's that piece of the golf course, you could connect right in to, to FDR Park. So that's, so that's what you have here. You look across the river at the Schuylkill River Tank Farm and you see there's this weird body of water next to it. You know what that is? It's called Mingo Creek. So it's all that's left of Mingo Creek. The rest of it is buried, like, you know, it probably um, juts out of some place around East, in Eastwick or, or, or somewhere in Southwest Philly like that. And it flows right below the Schuylkill River Tank Farm. Well, geez, how much imagination does it take to say, God, we, for 150 years, we've been giving people and the world petroleum products, all right? Maybe it's time to take it back. Maybe it's time to redeem it, like that redemption of the lower Schuylkill title. Why don't we make that part of Fairmount Park? You know, it's like, it's, it's crazy. It was a couple hundred million dollars that was spent to, um, you know, that uh, I, I believe that, um, you know, that Hilco paid to, to acquire this. It made a good financial move, you know, to, to, to bail out some of the creditors that were being, you know, messed up by, um, you know, by PES going, at, you know, going under, okay? But the city spends money on things left and right that you sometimes, not sometimes, you, you would often question. When you have a chance to take back 1,300 acres, put it on a long path to, to redemption, make it green, make it parkland. They did, they did it out of what they viewed as urgency and necessity, and they actually took, they took private land from people. Here was a case where nobody wanted the land. PES um, closed. They, need, they, they wanted out. They were just hoping to get as much money so that the creditors would have some amount of money going back to them. Why would the city be so passive? If you have an opportunity to acquire 1,300 acres, and then you put it, again, if you're limited in money, give it a slow pathway back. Don't cap your soil. Don't, don't keep that nasty stuff in place when it's only going to leach over time. I don't care how, many, how much you cap it. Forever is a really long time. Concrete is porous. What are you going to cap it with? Like things, think, things make their way through. They, they, they leach out. They, they move in plumes. 
and and you got this you got you got the, the tides are only getting higher and higher so there there you know there might still be some kind of opportunity because you know hilco has to put all this through through the public but if you just just go on your on your on your app on your google earth app or something like that and take a look at this area on your own look at how big it is note that fdr park which is 348 acres note like divide that into 1300 acres all right it's like what's that four times three three or four times the size of fdr park you could add 1300 acres combine it over time with with a with a green connection to fdr park you can you know if if you ever, I'm one of those weirdos that is that has actually both walked and biked across the Penrose Avenue Bridge. The walkway on either side of the bridge, only one is open right now. It's about as wide as you are. No, not much exaggeration there. It's crazy. It's not at all pedestrian friendly. You want to ride a bike over there and be, if you want to live a nightmare, ride your bike across it. But but the point is, there is pedestrian access on, on, on both sides of that. You can make pedestrian connections you got John Hines Wildlife Refuge, you know, not that far away. So you can, you could actually at least have some green stepping stone connectivity where you have Hines Wildlife Refuge, you create some kind of, you know, pathway system, you can get to Mingo Creek, you turn that tank farm. So the developers putting that into an active, they want to make it an active tank farm because it's a moneymaker. No way, man, get rid of those tanks, green up that area. Um, maybe you can clean up the, that little tidal mouth part of, of, of Mingo Creek. And so you make that green on one side of the Schuylkill. Then you, then you have a park that could call it FDR Park Expanded, call it a new park, I don't care, where you're straddling the Schuylkill River and you got a little mini um, tributary called, mini, called Mingo Creek coming in there. You know, then you start reclaiming. If you, were, if you listen to my podcast when I talked a little bit about you know, what the estuary, when I talked about tidal marsh, that whole, that whole area was living, breathing estuary. Go back to what, to what Beth Kephart was talking about, those bulrushes, those big, tall wetland grasses. That's what you want to put back there, okay? So there's this golden opportunity to take an area. You know, I don't even know what the heck these, um, you know, these, what are they, um, these um, warehouses are going to be. They gave them some you know, some, what's, what's a logistics center anyway? I don't know. To me, they look like big rectangular boxes, each one holding a million square feet. Whoa. Okay. That should, that should be passive open space. So that's, that's what I wanted to leave you with, you know, like, like, and that's back to that air, that, you know, that idea of like, you know, how does an activist stay aware of it all? How do you, you know, and, and, and how do you keep fighting these battles and why, and why does our city do these things? Well, connect a little bit. You know, if the city actually could connect, read Beth Kephart's book, um, let alone the redemption of the Lower Schuylkill, might they feel a twinge of guilt there about, you know, about bulrushes and about shad and things like that? So that's what I mean. You know, like how's the city, the city can't connect to that. How are they going to connect to our neighborhoods? More on that next week. But, um, but I invite you to take a look at that. Um, you know, you, you can easily dig up that article and, and, and find that public master plan and, um, and, and, and see what you think. In the meantime, keep enjoying the, uh, the summer wonders around you. And I will look forward to, uh, to talking about part two and take a little neighborhood by neighborhood look into um, some of the injustice that takes place um, throughout our city. See y'all next week.